Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16, verses uh, 16 through 24. We're returning to our series through the Farewell Discourse. I do want to reemphasize what Mark said. Uh, everyone come out tonight, uh, 5 o'clock. It's going to be a beautiful, the weather's going to be great. And we have stuff for the kids, but it's a lot of fun for the adults too to fellowship and get to know one another. Um, the way, just if you don't know, the way that works is we do our parish groups um, every week, but on the, um, on the months where we have uh, five weeks in the month, the final week, we do everybody together. So that's what this is. So this is one of those months that we have everybody together. So come and be a part of that. John 16, 16 through 24. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will, say you, I, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from me. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. The word of the Lord. Lord, we humbly submit ourselves now to your scriptures, asking that you would speak to us, asking that you would teach us, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us. You know every heart in this room. You know the reason that you have every single person here this morning. And so I pray that, uh, Lord, I pray that you would have your way with us in application. Uh, Most of all, um, we do pray that you would restore unto us the joy of our salvation. That you would give us such a supreme joy in Jesus that it transcends and transforms all circumstances in our lives, no matter how difficult or painful they are. Give me strength and courage and gentleness and all that I need, Lord, to be faithful to your word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Right. Kids, the word of the day is joy. Uh, Write it down. Mark it every time I say it and ask your parents why I chose that. However... Um, do not do what one child did in the first service, and they came up and showed me. I'm saying this for your parents. One kid thought it'd be a good idea to mark it on his arm every time I said the word joy. Okay, so don't do that for, to your parents. There's paper there. Use paper. Uh, my scorekeeper this morning, uh, if 
few weeks ago we started this, and I'm going to pick somebody. I'm picking somebody every week to be a scorekeeper. That is the official scorekeeper. You cannot argue with this person. Um, he or she is right every time. So you can come give your answer and they'll tell you. But I'm picking somebody every time that you need to know, uh, get to know, everybody needs to get to know. So whether you're a kid or not, they'll be in the narthex afterwards and they'd love to meet you. Casey Willis, please stand up. Hi, Casey. This is Casey Willis. Casey is one of the elders of our church. That's his lovely family. You cannot cheat for your kids, okay? So don't, 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 don't go with whatever they got. Casey's our scorekeeper. You can't argue with them. And everybody in our church needs to know Casey Willis. He's on our session. Wonderful guy. Okay. Um, let's talk about our football team, shall we? I know you non-sports fans don't like me talking about sports up here. I know... You uh, non-UK fans really don't like me talking Kentucky sports up here, especially when you're not having the best of seasons in Tennessee. But I've gone five games without mentioning uh, this football team, so you owe me one sermon illustration. So I'm, I'm using it this week, and then I'll shut up the rest of the season, perhaps. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, Here's what I'm experiencing. As good as this team does seem to be, as good as this season is going... I am still not allowing myself to get carried away with excitement. In fact, I still go into every game thinking we're going to lose. And that's not just a Kentucky football thing. I do this with Kentucky basketball as well. Um, Abby asked me yesterday whether I thought we were going to win. And even though I actually did feel good going to the game, I felt like we were better than South Carolina. I felt like um, we, we were probably going to win that game. Um, I said the same thing I say every time. You know, no, I really don't have a good feeling about this one. I think, I think we're probably going to lose. And, um, and she knows this. She asks me every time, and I always say we're going to lose. And, and, and here's it. I call it the low expectation technique. This is the game I play with myself. Uh, the way I kind of manage my idolatry is to convince myself that we're going to lose every game so that my idol doesn't fail me, right? So if we win, I'm... I am uh, pleasantly surprised. If we lose, it's just what I expected and so forth. Now, you may not be able to relate to me when it comes to um, that little mind game that I play with Kentucky sports, but you most certainly can relate to me with the lower your expectations mindset in life. And I would say this, how could you not, honestly? Life, Life in this cruel fallen world has trained all of us to do this time and time again you have been frustrated you have been offended you have experienced trauma your hopes have been crushed your dreams are still left unrealized your life has been a struggle at best maybe a defeat at worst and even when things are good tell me if this doesn't resonate Even when things are good, there's still that fatalistic whisper that we know too well that kind of pollutes our happiness with this thought, you know this can't last, right? You know the other shoe's going to drop. And so in this way, life in this world has hardened us into cynics to some degree all we know to do is to cope with this existence by lowering our expectations for this existence, Well, today, Jesus is going to protest that cynicism. Jesus, in our passage, is going to invite, dare I say, demand 
that we raise our expectations for joy. That we raise our expectations for happiness in this life. But the way he does it is he redefines joy by offering joy as something that is actually certain and permanent and not contingent upon silly things like football teams or big things like our children. Here's what we're going to see. Three things. The struggle of joy, the source of joy, and the striving for joy. So struggle, source, and striving when it comes to joy. Let's look at the struggle that we all have with this thing called joy. Verse 16 sets up the tension of the passage. He says, a little while you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. Now listen to verse 17 and 18 and tell me if you can't relate to their response to that. Some disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. Verse 18, so they they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Now what's going on here, I found this so relatable this week is you can feel them frantically grasping for control and clarity in the face of this news that Jesus is leaving them, which is what we all tend to do. Their response is our response when we feel the the frailty of our joy, when we feel our joy threatened, they freak out. They're saying, a little while? What's a little while mean? What do you mean by a little while? What do you, I don't even know what you're talking about. Explain, explain, explain. They're looking for clarity. They're looking for control. It's what we've been conditioned to do in this world of evasive joy. There is a movement these days. Perhaps you've heard this in churches before. But not even in churches, but it's, it's gotten out into kind of secular um, uh, self-help literature. There's a movement these days to define joy as something other than what it is, which is happiness. It is that. An emotion of feeling and happiness, a feeling of happiness. That's that's the meaning of the word in Greek here. Um, That's the meaning of the word in English, okay? That's the meaning of the word in every language because that's the meaning of joy, But what's popular these days is to say that happiness is this frivolous, trivial um, emotion that that kind of comes and goes with circumstances. And so we shouldn't necessarily be concerned with it. Happiness comes and goes. But joy is this deep, ineffective, unmoving, unemotional conviction that cannot be moved or shaken. That's nonsense. That's a coping mechanism to deal with the fact that we don't have joy. It's so hard to find it and it's so hard to maintain it that we'll just give up on it and define it as something that it isn't. But friends, don't give up on joy as being happy. You were made by God to be happy. I'll say, it in another, I'll say it in a way that will make you even more uncomfortable. You were made by God to feel happy in life. Don't give up on that dream of Eden. Even though I admit and the Bible admits that joy is a real struggle for all of us. 
loneliness, sadness, disappointment, regrets, fear, depression, shame, guilt. These are what come natural to us. Nobody struggles to feel shameful. Nobody struggles to feel regret. That comes natural. Joy is unnatural in a fallen world, and it is a real struggle. And when we do find it, like our disciples in this text, we fear to lose it. They found it in their Jesus, and their Jesus is saying, I've got to go for a little while. And they're saying, little while? What's little while mean? What are you talking about? We resonate with their emotion in this passage, their desperation, the fear, the uncertainty, the grasping to to hold on. Well, Jesus has an answer for them and for us, an answer to our struggle with joy. But his answer is a redefinition of joy, not necessarily of what it is. It is happiness. It is an emotion. He doesn't redefine it away from that but a redefinition of where it comes from. Let's look at the source of joy. 19. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask. So he said to them, is is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while you will see me? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will will turn into joy. Now what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't answer their question. What they want is their question answered. What do you mean by a little while? But instead, he leaves them in their uncertainty. Instead, he gives them the promise. I'm not going to answer your question, but here's the promise. Your joy will return. He is speaking, um, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep, And lament, but the world will rejoice. He is speaking of his coming cross, which is very near at this point. That day when the followers of Jesus weep and lament, while the world who crucified Jesus rejoices. But his promise is that sorrow will then turn into joy in a little while. So in a little while, you'll be sorrowful, but then in a little while, you won't. It will turn into joy. And that, of course, is the resurrection when they were surprised, not just them, but the whole world was surprised by joy, by the triumph of joy. So as it turns out, the little while is truly a little while in their terms, three days. We know that, but they don't. He leaves them in the dark. He doesn't answer their question. Why? Because control and clarity are not the source of joy. That's what we tend to think. We think control and clarity over our circumstances will make us happy or will keep us happy, and it won't. They won't. In other words, we think if we can just get our circumstances exactly the way that we want them, that's control. If I can just get my circumstances exactly the way I want them, then I'll be happy. Or... If, they are, if my circumstances are not how I want them, but I can understand why and what's going on, isn't that the first question you ask when anything goes wrong? Why is this happening? So when you're out of control, the first thing you want to run to is clarity. Well, at least I'm out of control. I got, at least I got to understand it. Clarity. 
If we can have clarity, then we'll be happy. But Jesus sees it differently. Control and clarity will not be the source of your joy. What is the source of joy according to Jesus? He introduces his answer with a one-verse parable in 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now that imagery is obvious, but let's, let's see what he's saying here. The anguish and pain of labor is overwhelmed and forgotten with the arrival of the baby. Now what this means is that contrary to what people tend to say regarding joy, joy actually is circumstantial. It actually has to do with circumstances. Something happens that makes us feel happy. But here's his point. Is that there is a joyful circumstance that has the ability to transcend all other circumstances. So it is a circumstance, but there is a circumstance that can transcend all the other circumstances. That's the point of the parable. I have been told that labor is quite unpleasant. I've seen it, um, I've seen my wife go through it four times. Every time I've been glad it was her and not me. But every time, every time, and every mother knows this, every time when that baby for the first time is placed on your chest, everything is forgotten. Everything is overcome. Everything is overwhelmed. From the first trimester morning sickness to the labor pains and contraction is vanished in that moment. Because a new circumstance has entered in. And that circumstance transcends all the other painful circumstances. And that's the point that Jesus is making about joy. Verse 22 so also you, so he's, so also, he's applying the parable. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. Jesus, he's saying Jesus will die, but then, then he will rise and they will see him again. And Jesus views his resurrection as the baby, so to speak. As the joyful circumstance that will transcend all mournful circumstances. He's very aware of how painful circumstances can be in this world. He's very aware of all the mourning and the pain and the brokenness. Even Calvary, he's very aware. But in his mind, he's saying there is a circumstance that transcends all those circumstances. And it's himself. Jesus himself is the joy that transcends all pain. Or to put it more specifically, the circumstance of having Jesus overwhelms and overcomes any and all other circumstances. That's how big he is. But then Jesus says something phenomenal. He ends that verse by saying, you'll have joy and no one will take your joy from you. What a, what, a, what a promise. He's saying, seeing me, having me, will be a joyful circumstance that overcomes every circumstance and no one will take you from me. No one will take the joy from you. This is utterly unique. 
Although Jesus does view joy as himself, and he's saying that nobody can take your joy from you, except that he is a circumstance that is about to change. That's the problem with happiness, right? It's fleeting. It's, it's, it's one change of circumstance away from being lost. But Jesus says, no one's going to take your joy from you, and I'm your joy. How's that possible? Because having Jesus, seeing Jesus, is a changing circumstance. After the resurrection, he will ascend, and they will see him no more. And they would see, and, and, and we ourselves have never had the opportunity to see Jesus physically. And yet, he talks about himself as in unchangeable, untakeable, I know that's not a word, as a joy that cannot be taken. Well, I know it's been a couple weeks, but do you recall the context of the section that we are in in the discourse? This is all about, not Jesus, someone else, who? The helper. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the last time we were together in John, Jesus says that it's good that I'm leaving you. Because in leaving you, I can actually be with you in a way that I cannot be with you unless I leave you. I can actually be with each of you as if I were only with one of you. The Spirit is the multiplication of the presence of Jesus within us all. An irrevocable unchangeable, immutable circumstance in the lives of believers. Simply put, by His Holy Spirit, we have Jesus with us at all times, period. Which means we have the circumstance of joy that transcends all other circumstances with us at all times, period. You have joy and it cannot be taken from you. Definitively so. Which raises the obvious dilemma. Well, I don't feel like it. I don't feel this joy. If you're telling me it's a motion of happiness, of peace, of contentment. If I always have it, then why don't I always feel it? Well, something interesting about this passage is that Jesus says you're going to have a joy that no one can take from you. And then look at the end of his teaching in verse 24, the last phrase of our passage in verse 24. He says, something's going to happen that your joy may be full. It's something that we have, but it's also something that we can have more of. As if we have to fully appropriate what is already ours. Or to put it another way, this is a joy that we have to work to enjoy. Let's close an application by looking at that. Striving for joy. Verse 23. Some of the, these are some of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses. Verse 23. In that day, meaning that day of the Holy Spirit that's coming. In that day where we are. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing of me. In my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, what is that all about? And how is that an answer to this dilemma of joy? Well, here's what he does. Interestingly, Jesus turns to prayer in his discussion of joy. 
But these verses are so often misunderstood and only compound the problem of joy. Here is how we are tempted to understand what he's saying here. Prayer is a means to get what you want from God. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Or ask and you will receive. So prayer is a means for me to get what I want from God. And if I get what I want from God, I'll be happy. That turns joy back into having control and clarity over our circumstances. Only God is now the means to get control and clarity. (laughs) If I could just have everything exactly how I want it, I'll be happy. And here's what prayer is. God, get everything exactly how I want it. But Jesus has redefined the source of joy as himself. So how do we approach these verses in light of that context? Here's what's going on. The disciples have had Jesus with him, with them. They've been able to converse with him. They've been doing life together. They can ask him questions and he could respond. They could ask for things and he could give them. They had Jesus, but exclusively Jesus. And Jesus is actually going to say, there's more to have than even me. Look at verse 23 and the change that is taking place. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Now here's, in other words, the days of doing life together with you asking me and me doing things for you, those days are about to be over. You're not going to ask anything of me anymore because I won't be there. But because of the Spirit, a different and even better day is dawning. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, and then he totally revolutionized prayer. Up until this point, this is prayer. Hey, Jesus, what do you think about this? Jesus answers, that was their prayers. Now he's revolutionizing. He says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. That is, you won't be asking me. You will be asking the Father directly in my name, and he is going to be the one who answers your prayers now. Because of the Spirit in my name, you now have direct access to God the Father. He says in verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name, meaning You've always just asked me directly, but now you will be asking in my name. Now you will be invoking my name. And he sees that as actually better. Or as he put it, he sees that as your, that your joy may be full. Here's the point. Jesus says, until now you've had me, but you ain't seen nothing yet. You think I bring joy? Wait till you have the Trinity. You've had access to me? Just wait till you have access to what I have access to. Just wait till you get in on what my name gets you in on. At the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, there's this powerful moment, this beautiful moment, what what must have been a moment that was just the fullness of joy for Jesus. It says that the heavens open up, The Spirit, the Trinitarian, listen to this Trinity moment. The heavens open up, the Spirit descends upon Jesus, and a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Wow, what a moment. (laughs) That must have been amazing for those who got to see it, but more amazing for Jesus who got to experience it. A Trinitarian moment of sheer, eternal unending pleasure and joy. How happy do you think Jesus was in that moment 
to have the Spirit overwhelm him and to have the Father say, you are my beloved Son and with you I am well pleased. I'll tell you how happy he was in that moment, as happy as the Trinity has eternally been forever in his own presence, which is described as the fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. God has existed forever enjoying himself. Now here's what Jesus is saying. You've had me, and I know that's been amazing. Much better it is to have my name. Because in my name you have the spirit and direct access to the Father who looks upon you and says, this is my child with whom I am very happy. That you are the delight. You are the joy of the Trinity. You have been enfolded into what Jesus has always known, the fullness of joy and the pleasure of triune fellowship. These verses aren't about the joy of praying and getting what we want. These verses are about the joy of prayer itself. That is prayer defined as communion with God by the Spirit in the name of Jesus to the Father. That is the fullness of joy. So the greater point Jesus is saying is that you have had me directly, but soon you will have the Trinity directly. That, that, as he says, your joy may be full. Please listen to me. God is not a means to an end, to a happier end. He is the end. He is not the way you get better circumstances, which will then make you happy He is the circumstance that makes you happy. So here's the application. Definitively, joy is yours. The joy is yours. You have access to it at this very moment. It is yours and no one can take it from you. Now, strive to enjoy your joy. To experience what is yours. You have access to God. Strive after God. Make it your highest ambition in life to practice the presence of God, which is your joy. Just carry the, the, uh, the illustration that Jesus has already started. Just carry it on out. He says uh, that this joyful circumstance of having a baby overwhelms all the other pain and agony of labor and all that stuff. But you know that child grows up. And every parent will tell you this amazing thing that we do, this amazing thing that we do, which is to neglect our joy. That we get so busy in life that these kids, our joys, can be neglected, can be frustrations, can just be things we got to get through and do, just formalities. But if we ever just stop and say, I'm going to be in the presence of this child. I'm going to talk to my child. I'm going to play with my child. I'm going to get to know my child. I'm going to listen to my child. I'm going to watch my child. I'm going to delight in my child. You will see the joy that is there for you all the time that you just, you're too busy and you're neglecting. And I don't, don't, don't let the sermon turn into parent guilt, okay? It's, it's an illustration, but you get the point. Same thing. You have Jesus by His Spirit along with access to the Father. Don't neglect it. 
The joy is there. It's yours. It cannot be taken from you. Or perhaps you don't have this joy. Perhaps you don't have Jesus or his spirit or the Father. Perhaps this isn't your faith. My only aside to you is, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you how it's going to be. I'm going to love you enough to be honest with you. Here will be your life. One fleeting joy after another. You will go from one joy to another as each fails you and you will say, as Bono said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But you could have this. This could be yours. This joy is here for you. The joy that is the dear desire of every nation as he has described or the joy of every longing heart. Your heart can finally find its rest in Jesus. But for the Christian... Listen, I don't think I have to tell you what this looks like. I think I just have to tell you to do it. You know what it is. You know how to access this joy. It is repentance of those things that hinder the presence of God. You're not going to get the joy of God's presence harboring bitterness in your heart that you won't let go. I'm sorry. You are not going to experience the joy of God's presence with a life entangled in pornography. I'm sorry, you won't. You are not going to find the joy of God's presence in a greedy, hoarding, selfish life. I'm sorry, you won't. You are not going to find the joy of God's presence protecting your addictions. I'm sorry, but indulgence of sin makes life miserable, no matter how great your circumstances are. Have you noticed that? Everything can be great in your life, but you just can't find happiness. Why? There could be many reasons, but have you considered it might be the sin you are unwilling to give up is poisoning and polluting everything? But the opposite is likewise true. It's not just repentance of those things that hinder the presence of God, but the pursuit of God's presence. Yes, in prayer. Yes, in prayer. Big time in prayer. But in scripture, in fellowship, just in a parish group, in corporate worship, in these ordinary means where God's presence is waiting for you. Have you noticed That your circumstances can be horrific, but if you are faithfully laboring in the means of God's presence, that joy seems to just transform even the worst circumstances. Have you noticed that? So harboring sin and failing to practice the presence of God robs even the best circumstances of joy. Likewise, repentance of sin and practicing the presence of God transcends even the worst circumstances with this peculiar joy. Simply put, my circumstances can be terrible, but in communion with God, I am happy. My circumstances can be amazing, but without communion with God, I am unhappy. So, the promise of the passage is that joy is in fact yours. And no one can take that from you. But you. You can quench the spirit of God. You can deny his conviction. You can resist what he's calling you to. 
You can abandon the means of grace. No one can take it from you, but you can squelch it. So, why don't we have joy if the promise is that joy is ours? Well, the challenge of the past is that we have to strive to experience what is ours, the presence of God. And you know what? That striving not only makes you happy, it makes God happy. Why did Jesus accept the title, the prophetic title, Man of Sorrows? What a name. That was a hymn. Man of Sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came. Why did he accept the destiny of being acquainted with grief? Why did he embrace the misery of the cross? The, the, the easy answer that you've heard many times, and it's the right answer, is that he did it for us. Jesus suffered sorrow to purchase our joy. But you know, it's not all about us. Do you know why Jesus was actually willing to be so miserable? So that he could be happy? That's a direct quote. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Now, what was the joy that was set before him? You. Your joy in him makes him joyful. Strive for joy, not just for you, but for Jesus. For God. What makes Jesus happy? You being happy in Jesus. Therefore, this day, go make, go make Jesus happy by you finding your joy and happiness in him. Let me pray. Lord, grant us the joy of our salvation, the happiness of your presence, the delight of your spirit. We come now to a a table which you promise will make us happy, but it's the table of your suffering. But by your misery, Lord, we are joyful. And it is in our joy that you find your joy. And so feed us now, we pray in your name. Amen.